Hi, and welcome to the Living Room Scripture Lessons. My name is Brad Constantine, and this podcast series is going to be about the book of Genesis. Although this is not an official recording of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, every effort has been made to, to be as doctrinally accurate as possible. If you're interested in a deep analysis of the book of Genesis, you've come to the right place. I hope you enjoy what you hear here, and if you have any questions, you can share, link, and subscribe. Thank you. Hi, and welcome back to the Genesis Podcast. I'm Brad Constantine, and this discussion is going to be with regards to Genesis chapter 6. Now, Genesis chapter 6 is the same as Moses chapter 8, beginning with verse 13. And so we're going to go into the book of Moses to read from, because that's the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis 6. So if you want to open up to Moses chapter 8, verse 13, we'll start there. So we begin with the the account of Noah here, and Noah, we believe, is Gabriel. Uh, A couple of quotes here from Joseph Smith. He says, Gabriel, he stands next in authority to Adam in the priesthood. He was called of God to this office and was the father of all living in his day, and to him was given the dominion. These men held keys first on earth and then in heaven. And then from uh, Joseph Fielding Smith, we read, From the scriptures we learn that Noah is Gabriel and that he came to the prophet Joseph Smith in his calling as an an Elias and restored the keys of the dispensation in which the Lord made covenant with Abraham and his posterity after him to the latest generation. Summarizing the facts, Joseph Smith revealed that Gabriel is Noah. Luke declared that it was the angel Gabriel who appeared to Zacharias and Mary and that the Lord has declared that Elias appeared to Zacharias and Joseph Smith. Therefore, Elias is Noah. So, verse 13, And Noah and his sons hearkened unto the Lord and gave heed, and they were called the sons of God. Now, what this means by the reference sons of God means that these, that the children here are in the covenant. These are covenant people uh, that have made covenants with the Lord, and they're keeping the, their covenants. However, it changes in verse 14. Notice what it says here. And when these men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, meaning unto the, the sons of God, the sons of men saw that these daughters were fair, and they took them wives even as they chose. So when it refers here to daughters that were the sons of men, that means that these daughters were marrying outside the covenant, that they were marrying sons of men who were not sons of God, in the sense that they weren't uh, covenant makers and covenant keepers. So that's what's happening here as we talk about why the flood was necessary. Verse 15, And the Lord said unto Noah, The daughters of thy sons have sold themselves, for behold, mine anger is kindled against the sons of men, for they will not hearken to my voice. Notice what it says here, that the sons, the daughters of thy sons, so this sounds like this may be um, Noah's grandchildren that are are causing this wickedness here. And then verse 16, And it came to pass that Noah prophesied and taught the things of God, even as it was in the beginning. So he's teaching the same things that Adam had taught. And the Lord said unto Noah, My spirit shall not always strive with man. Now what does that mean? What spirit is he talking about here? Is it the light of Christ? Is it the Holy Ghost? Is it the gift of the Holy Ghost? So what is it that we're talking about here? So let's try to figure this out. Um the merciful kindness of the Lord and his long suffering are often looked forward to by wicked men who prolong their shame in doing iniquity until the fire of mine indignation is kindled against them. 
Just so long as there is hope for repentance, the Spirit of the Lord will strive to awaken in man a responsibility of righteousness that shall eventually, if not sooner, lead them back to the right path from which he may have strayed. Also, man's conscience, that court of righteous and holy decisions folded up in the bosom of even the humblest, if appeal is made thereto, often renders a judgment pure and unspotted from the sins of the world. But there is a higher judge from whose decision there is no appeal. If men reject the impulses of conscience and of the Holy Spirit, there comes a time when neither one nor the other will prevail. The spirit, because of the hardness of heart, and the conscience, because it is inured to sin and corruption. Um, and this is from Signs of the Times. Um, also, um, when he talks about my spirit will not always strive with man, he's talking here about the light of Christ, because they never had the gift of the Holy Ghost. Uh, in talking about this, he says, uh, and this is from, um, let's see, Donald Perry. He says, this is not a prophecy that deals only with the last days. It is true in any age that the Lord's Spirit will not always strive with the unrepentant. But we also know that because of the iniquity of earth's inhabitants in the last days, combined with their unwillingness to repent, the time will come when they are ripened in iniquity and the Spirit will no longer strive to bring them to repentance. The final result will be a war, a world war that will destroy a third of mankind, followed by a number of devastating plagues and culminating in the destruction of the wicked at the Lord's coming. Uh, Joseph Smith once said, This generation is as corrupt as the generation of the Jews that crucified Christ, and if he were here today and should preach the same doctrine he did then, they would put him to death. And then uh, Joseph Fielding Smith said, uh, because of the wickedness of the world, that spirit has been withdrawn. And when the spirit of the Lord is not striving with man, the spirit of Satan is. And so we have to be very careful here that uh, the Lord's withdrawn his spirit. Uh, that doesn't mean that everybody has, has experienced that, but there's a lot of people that have. Continuing verse 17. For he shall know that all flesh shall die, yet his days shall be in 120 years. What he's saying here is that Noah is going to live another 120 years to be able to preach repentance to the people, and then the flood will come. And if men do not repent, I will send in the floods upon them. So he's not saying that man's going to live to be 120 years old. He's saying that uh, you have 120 years to preach the gospel, uh, and then the flood will come. Verse 18, And in those days there were giants on the earth, and they sought Noah to take away his life. But the Lord was with Noah, and the power of the Lord was upon him. And the Lord ordained Noah. Now, uh, it mentions here that he was that the Lord ordained him, but we know that Methuselah actually ordained um, Noah by the laying on of hands. Let me just read you a quote here from John Taylor. He says, Now, with regard to Noah and his day, God made arrangements beforehand and told Methuselah that when the people should be destroyed, that a remnant of his seed should occupy the earth and stand foremost upon it. And Methuselah was so anxious to have it done that he ordained Noah to the priesthood when he was 10 years of age. Noah then stood in his day as the representative of God. Continuing verse 19, uh, he ordained Noah after his order, meaning the Melchizedek priesthood, and commanded him that he should go forth and declare his gospel unto the children of men, even as it was given unto Enoch. And it came to pass that Noah called upon the children of men that they should repent, but they hearkened not unto his words. And also after they had, had heard him, they came up before him, saying, Behold, we are the sons of God. Have we not taken unto ourselves the daughters of men? And are we not eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage? And our wives bear unto us children, and the same are mighty men, which are like unto men of old, men of great renown. And they hearkened not unto the words of Noah. 
So here they are very proud in their wickedness and doing the things that they want to continue doing. Um, there's a theory about the flood, uh, the purpose of the flood. Here's a theory that says that uh, in the spirit world, those who were coming to earth were pleading with God that they not have to go down to wicked families and thereby risk not being taught to, to live the gospel. The Lord then kills everyone to start over with a righteous family to teach their children the gospel. Now, as I mentioned, that's just a theory. That's not, we don't know that for sure. Another possible theory is that the Lord wanted to destroy them all because they were intermarrying among the descendants of Cain and that if they had permitted to do so, then they would have uh, been in, ineligible to hold the priesthood. That's just, again, another theory. Um, not sure. Okay, uh, verse 22, And God saw that the wickedness of men had become great in the earth, and every man was lifted up in the imagination of the thoughts of his heart, being only evil continually. And it came to pass that Noah continued his preaching unto the people, saying, Hearken and give heed unto my words. Now there's an interesting thing about Noah here, and that is that he begins his preaching before he even has uh, his three sons. Ham's, Shem and Japheth, they aren't even born yet, and they won't be born for about 20 years after he begins to preach. So that takes a lot of faith on his part to realize that he may be the last one uh, or the only one that's going to be able to survive this. He doesn't even have sons yet to be on the, on the ark with him. Verse 25, And it repented Noah, and his heart was pained that the Lord had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at the heart. Now, the King James Version says that it repented the Lord, and we know that the Lord doesn't repent, doesn't need to, uh, but the Joseph Smith clarifies that, that it was Noah that was sorry that uh, that uh, man is, is so wicked. Verse 26, And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping things and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth Noah that I have created them, and that I have made them, and he hath called upon me, for they have sought his life. And thus Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, for Noah was a just man and perfect in his generation, and he walked with God and did also his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. All three of them held the priesthood. Verse 28, the earth was corrupt before God and it was filled with violence. Sounds much like our day. And God looked upon the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted its way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, the end of all flesh is come before me. For the earth is filled with violence, and behold, I will destroy all flesh from off the earth. And as I mentioned before, if uh, Noah had uh, grandchildren uh, that were also going astray, then they would have also been destroyed during this time. All right, uh, let me just read you a quote here. This is from uh, Alfred Edersheim. He's an um, Old Testament uh, scholar back in the early 1900s. He said, nor was this all. Even so, the long-suffering of God waited for 120 years while the ark was a-preparing, and during this time, especially Noah must have acted as a preacher of righteousness. The building of the ark commenced when Noah was 480 years old. That is, before any of his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, had been born. In fact, just 20 years before the birth of Shem, thus the great faith of Noah appeared not only in building an ark in the midst of a scoffing and unbelieving generation, and that against all human probability of its ever being needed, and 120 years before it was actually required, but in providing room for his sons and his sons' wives, while as yet he himself was childless. Indeed, the more we try to realize the circumstances, the more grand appears the unshaken confidence of the patriarch. So the great faith that Noah has here in, in building the ark, even before the, the sons are born. So that's pretty remarkable. All right, um, back to... Uh, 
let's see now where did I leave off verse 30 okay verse 30 um, is the end of Moses chapter 8 so now we're going to pick up back in uh, Genesis chapter 6 uh, verse 14 and then it says here in beginning in verse 14 make thee therefore an ark of gopher wood and we think that it was probably cypress or maybe cedar wood that was used rooms and the Hebrew says nests or compartments uh, shalt thou make in the ark and thou shalt pitch it within and without with pitch and we think that this is some sort of a coating like wax or asphalt or something like that um, remembering that this is kind of the same thing that is that uh, the ark in which uh, Moses is also put it mentions that it's covered inside and outside with pitch so that it, it'll float better verse 15 the length of the ark thou shalt make 300 cubits the breadth of it 50 cubits and the height of it 30 cubits okay so what's a cubit the common um, rule was that it was from the tip of the fingers to the end of the elbow and so that was about 18 inches or so so if we use that as the measure um, a foot and a half so 300 cubits would be about 450 feet the breadth of it 50 cubits would be 75 feet wide and then the height would be about 45 feet or 30 cubits verse 16 and windows thou shalt make to the ark now there's a hebrew translation down at the bottom of the page that says shohar or sohar some rabbis believe it was a precious stone that shone in the ark so it wasn't necessarily a window but maybe a shining stone that they used to, to give light into the ark now remember when the brother of jared is building the barges and they don't have light in the barges and so he the Lord tells him well you figure out what to do I wonder if uh, the brother of Jared read the account of Noah and said well Noah had an ark maybe I can uh, with with lights that are with stones that shone maybe I can get the same thing and so that's I think that might be why he gets the idea of, of getting the the stones molten out so that God could touch them and make them light anyway uh, that's an interesting idea shalt thou make to the ark and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above and the door of the ark thou shalt set in the side thereof lower second lower chamber shalt thou make in it so there's going to be a two or three story um, ark that's going to be able to house lots of the animals and, and the people and also food and stuff verse 17 and behold I even I will bring in, bring in a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh wherein is the breath of life from under heaven and everything that liveth on the earth shall die but with thee will I establish my covenant even as I have sworn unto thy father Enoch that of thy posterity shall come all nations and thou shalt come into the ark and thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons wives with them and of every living thing of all flesh two of every kind shalt thou bring into the ark to keep alive with thee they shall be male and female now in the next chapter we'll learn that it wasn't just two of every kind uh, verse 20 of fowls after their kind and of cattle after their kind of every creeping thing of the earth after his kind two of every of every kind shall thou take into the ark to keep them alive and take uh, take thou unto thee of all food that is eaten and thou shalt gather fruit of every kind into thee unto thee in the ark and it shall be for food for thee and for them thus said, thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him and so that's the end of, of uh, chapter 6 of Genesis um, now there's some interesting thoughts here about where um, the ark may have been built at um, thinking about uh, that where Adam and Eve had been and and um, there's a couple of quotes here this is from the Old Testament student manual 
It says it should be remembered that the Garden of Eden was in the land now, uh, now known as North America, although it is not known how far men had moved from that general location in the 1600 years between the fall of Adam and the flood. It is likely that Noah and his family lived somewhere in that general area. On December 5th of 1891, a stake president relates the incident of the prophet Joseph telling Dimick B. Huntington that Noah built the ark in the land where South Carolina is now. That's an interesting idea, isn't it? Uh, and then the Bible says that they landed on Mount Ararat when the ark finally came to rest. No location for Mount Ararat is given in the scriptures. The traditional site is a mountain found in northeastern Turkey near the border of Russia. Commenting on the distance traveled, uh, Joseph Ewing Smith said, We read that it was in, a, in the seventeenth day of the second month when the great deep was broken up and the rain was forty days. The ark landed at Ararat on the seventeenth day of the seventh month. Therefore, there were five full months of travel when the Lord drove the ark to its final destiny. And so we don't know for sure exactly where it is. We, we also think that uh, there have been some satellite images that have shown a possible location for the ark uh, that they think is is upon Mount Ararat but uh, we can't do we can't go visit it because uh, Russia and Turkey won't let any expeditions go up there at this point so we're not sure that that's really the ark but uh, it's possible that the remains of it are still up there in the frozen ice uh, of the top of the mountain I'm thankful for the scriptures and know that these things are true and that as we uh, get into the the gospel, uh, study it a little bit more, we can know the truthfulness of these things. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, I look forward to seeing you again next time. Uh, if you like this podcast, you can share it and do whatever else you're supposed to. Thanks. Bye.